Hello everyone on Education Monsters. Today we have Dr. Jason Sellers and he's here to talk to us about the education system in med school because he's lived and coming from uh, the United States in Philadelphia, greater area, but now currently lives in Paris with his beautiful wife. So welcome to you, Jason. Glad to Hi. have you. Thanks so much for having me here, Aurélie. Yeah, so I'm very, very impressed by your French, actually. And I think we could have done this episode in French, but I trust your judgment on choosing the language. <laughs> we can switch back and forth if you want, if that would help your students, too. <laughs> It would definitely be like, a, you know, like a shock factor. It's like, wow, right. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> okay, Jason, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, so uh, like you said, my name is Jason Sellers. I am originally from the Philadelphia area, um, which is you know, on the east coast of the U.S., not too far from New York City, about two hours south of New York. Um, that's where I grew up. I then left for Boston, um, where I did my undergraduate studies in biochemistry, uh, molecular biology. At, while I was at Boston, I did a study abroad program in Paris, which is where this um, you know, love of Paris and everything French kind of started. And then after I graduated, I you know, kind of did a few different things. I, I started off working in the pharmaceutical industry for a couple of years, um, had always had an interest in you know, working in research. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I kind of you know, I was looking for new things, new adventures. So I up and moved back to Paris, was, you know, literally looking for something to study in France. And I found biomedical engineering. So uh, I did a, a two years master's program um, in biomedical engineering in France and Paris. And then uh, kind of all the while had this idea of, you know, I love research, I love science, but more than anything else, I love working with patients and I love, you know, I want to help people and I want to have some kind of, you know, uh, tangible impact on people. And so that's what, you know, where this idea of going to medical school uh, really came from. So after the Paris, the, you know, two-year Paris experience, I moved back to Philadelphia. I went to medical school at uh, Temple University, a school in the Philadelphia area. I was there for four years and then I uh, did my residency training in family medicine uh, for an additional three years after, after medical school. And so now I'm a practicing family medicine physician. And interestingly, I uh, didn't take the usual route. Uh, I decided to get into telemedicine. So uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. And I'm you know, really excited about that. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting topic because we've moved more in the digital world with the pandemic. But I recall it's something you wanted to do even before COVID happened because it allowed you to switch back and forth between uh, the US and Paris. Um, but first and foremost, I'd like to know from being in both research and being a doctor, since you've practiced both sides of the helping the patient, because I've, I've always thought that being in research, if you find that one drug, that one treatment that works, you could have the power to save millions. Whereas being a doctor could be less efficient because you're doing one by one. And that's also what made me tilt towards research more than being a doctor itself. But how did that make you feel? 
No, I think you're, I think you totally have a point with that. When you think about it, the people doing research are really the ones driving, you know, the progress of medicine, essentially. I mean, you look at like the COVID vaccines, that didn't really come from doctors. I mean, we're the ones, you know, trying to convince our patients to get them and, you know, trying to make sure that they're protected. But the COVID vaccines came from our, you know, robust medical uh, research uh, system in the U.S. and abroad. I think that the uh, decision to do uh, research versus medicine, um, you know, the they're they're complementary, really. So, you know, on the research side, you're, yes, what you're doing is, you know, being applied to people all throughout the world. And for me too, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into research because I wanted to feel like I was having that impact. When I actually started doing it, I think one of the things that I wanted more of, or I missed having was actually seeing that impact and seeing what the, you know, the results of all this scientific study was actually having on patients and, you know, real people with, you know, real lives and stories. and I can definitely relate to that because that's also the reason a lot of people move from in vivo, in vitro to clinical research, to have that patient face-to-face, like to add some humanity, to add some human side to the job and so that you yeah. can see the result yourself. The thing is, yeah, we can talk about also the differences between academic research and pharmaceutical research, which uh, you've done as well, because one, I feel is more publishing papers on the greater scales, maybe you're helping someone down the line 15 years from when it's published or making a drug that could have an impact. But you can also talk about the many ethical reasons why money should or should not be involved in a healthcare system. Yeah, there are so many sides to the pharmaceutical industry. I, I think the money side is something that really, you know, has really popped out. And I, it's something that it's a shame that I think that we're mixing the question of creating medications that are helping people and the question of money and being able to afford those medications. What I did think was interesting is that whereas we have this perspective from outside the pharmaceutical industry, I would say that from inside the industry, one of the things I noticed was that the people that I was working with, my colleagues, all had the similar mindset as me. And it wasn't really about the money for us doing the research. It was really about helping the patients. And that I think that value really does hold true at the heart of, you know, the research machine that we find within the pharmaceutical industry. But I, you know, now that I'm on the other side of it, I do admit that there is a little bit too much mixing of of money and insurance. And, you know, when you're trying to find a medication for your patients that they can afford that's covered by insurance, it's like, it can be a nightmare, you know, having to call the pharmacy and making sure it's on the formulary and whatnot. So I think from that aspect, we have a lot of work to do. It's interesting that you know so much about the costs because usually every time, every single time that I've asked a primary physician, like what would be the cost of that treatment? They always refer me to the receptionist. 
because they're the one dealing with the insurance and the paperwork. So how did you learn more about this? Did you have like a specific course um, at Temple University, for example, uh, talking about the healthcare system in itself and how we can change that system so it's more affordable for patients on a day-to-day basis to not be scared to see a doctor just for a fever? Well, certainly in my medical studies and medical training, the whole idea of health equity so that people from various socioeconomic backgrounds are all able to get the same high quality medical care is something that has been really pushed and is hopefully going to continue being, you know, a huge topic for educating, you know, future generations of of doctors as years go by. So uh, I think that's really important. This day and age, uh, at least in my training, I have been taught that it's important for patients to all receive good quality care and not have to worry about the cost. I haven't had any specific or any formal education in what that entails in terms of what's covered by insurance and how medications are paid for and why we have copays and why it always or why it never seems to work the way we're expecting it to. But that's something I've kind of just picked up over the years. And as a resident, you kind of learn to, you know, while we do have our, you know, medical staff to help us with some of those questions and helping patients out, at the end of the day, it's the physician or whatever provider is providing medical care. It's their responsibility that the patient's able to get what they need. And so if that means that, you know, I have to start Googling the, you know, latest uh, insurance formulary, or if I have to call the pharmacy to make sure something's going to be covered or find out what the, you know, substitute has to be. It's, it's kind of just uh, trial by fire for that. You just have to get into it so that the patient can get what they need. And um, have you ever had the case of someone saying, I can't afford it, no matter what you presented on the table? I've had, yeah, I've had, unfortunately, quite a few cases where we were just blocked. And sometimes there's not a good option. The specific cases that come to my mind are, unfortunately, have been around uh, life-saving medication. So insulin and inhalers, right? So insulin so that people who have diabetes are able to control their sugars, which can be a life-threatening you know, issue. And then inhalers so that people with asthma or COPD can breathe comfortably. And for whatever reason, over the years, those medications in the U.S., now we're not talking about other countries, specifically the U.S. right now, have been, the prices have just like skyrocketed. And I couldn't believe that people would go to the pharmacy and they'd be charged $300 for a month's worth of insulin. And others who would, you know, be paying, you know, a hundred to $200 a month for their insulin covered by insurance. And that was just, you know, normal for them, even though that amount of money uh, ended up being a significant portion of their monthly budget. Do you know why the price has risen up lately? Do you think there's like a specific event, they run out of something, some resources to produce the medicine or to produce the material or the product itself? I really think that setting prices has to do with market forces, unfortunately. 
Um, supply and demand. Supply and demand, the interplay of insurance and what insurance companies are willing to pay and what pharmaceutical companies are willing to charge. Um, I think some of it is set from Medicare, which is the social health system in the U.S. for people who are 65 years of age and older. The lack of generic alternatives to name brand medications. So I think there's a lot that goes into how prices are set. I don't get it why it's become so expensive other than, you know, market forces, you know, somehow in other countries, like, you know, for example, in France, people are able to just get insulin or get the inhaler that they need because it's covered by the health system. You know, typically, uh, the vast majority of the time, don't have to worry about the cost. And so it comes back to what you said earlier when you said these people think it's normal. The word normal really depends on if everybody's doing it. If ever, everybody is paying the same price for that, then why shouldn't I be paying that? But once you get out of the US, you go to France, like having seen both worlds, then mm -hmm. you realize there are other ways to do that. But also on the broader scale, French people have been complaining a lot about le trou de la sécu because a lot of people take advantage of that, go to the doctors too often. Even mm -hmm. if you want to be held accountable and still pay like a small fee, like 20 to 20 dollars per consultation, mm -hmm. then people still abuse the system to the mm -hmm. point where they think the the government's money is going to be drained. So I'm not sure. I haven't done my research about and how how deep can this be mm -hmm. at all. But the thing is, it's true. Money is a limited resource. And unfortunately, sometimes you're not choosing like the lifestyle or the body or the genes you're born with. So it's nice to have this socialist cushion to help you out with your costs. Yeah. And maybe we can find a balance between the two where people can also work probably better on prevention. So probably adding a stronger curriculum in school where they can teach you about taking care of your health, taking care of your body and not having that culture of junk food eating in front of the computer, being stressed out, that could also add up to the cost of society. And I think France has done quite a good job with like moving from like smoking to not smoking so much lately. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the 90s and the 2000s, it was so fashionable, like everybody smoked everywhere. And now it's just like gotten a lot better. I don't know if it's uh, vaping that deters them from people, but it's like, you know, small changes that we don't realize unless... We take a step back and go to another country and realize, oh, well, it's not supposed to be normal. And you make a good point. We, you know, there's a there's a fine line between being able to access the health care that you need, but then not taking advantage of it and using the healthcare system for every little thing that isn't really essential to being healthy or or having your medical conditions uh, treated. So I think that'll be a question that the regulators and government officials and everybody will continue to keep asking themselves for many, many, many years to come. I would say in, in regards to what you mentioned about just moving to a healthier lifestyle. I still remember when I did my first, uh, or when I when I did my study abroad in Paris in the spring of 2008, uh, I remember arriving here, it was like a day or two after they banned smoking in restaurants in Paris, indoors in restaurants and nightclubs and bars and things like that. It was 
amazing. I mean, I couldn't imagine what it was would have been like before then with, you know, going to, out to these all, all these places filled with smoke. Overall, we as a health community and, a, and health system and doctors on an individual basis um, are all kind of realizing uh, over the past, you know, several years and decades that preventative healthcare, you know, which is that healthcare, which really focuses on preventing chronic conditions and disease, as opposed to just treating it, um, is really the, the way to go. It's better from a health standpoint, people are healthier, people are ha happier. It's better from a cost standpoint. So obviously the insurance companies are, you know, realizing the importance of this as well, because if, you know, if you're not smoking anymore and you don't develop COPD, which is a chronic lung disease uh, that many people can get after smoking for, you know, many, many years, then you are living a healthier life, you're living a happier life, but you're also spending less money on all those inhalers and hospital trips that you won't have to take because you took care of yourself uh, uh, when you were younger. Yeah. Did you also notice that prevention is so underrated? The media portrays it as we don't give enough weight to prevention. We give a lot more credit to people who fix stuff. Like we saw that during the pandemic. Like when do we give credit to people who for enforces the confinement? That And I don't know about the curfew, if it's that logical, making sense. But prevention is pretty powerful because we don't know the alternative reality of what would be like if we'd never confined during the pandemic. So it's the same way you can't go back in time to see what you could have done better because it already passed. There are different mentalities and definitely the mentality of fixing something that's wrong. It's more tangible than preventing something in the first place, right? Because you can actually see something changing. But I think in the, in the medical community, it's becoming more highly rated. And I think that more people are getting into primary care or realizing the importance of primary care. More people are emphasizing, you know, the importance of seeing your physician every year, getting your, you know, routine screening tests and whatnot, because at the end of the day, prevention is you know, the most important prevention is key, right? Prevention is key, but someone has to teach that to the kids. Someone has to teach that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it comes back full circle. Of like whose responsibility is it? Is it the schools? Is it the parents? Is it TV? Is it the media? Do celebrities also have a weight into how they portray themselves because kids look up to them? You know, mm -hmm. we can always find ways to make it better, but someone has to be there to start it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody is um, responsible for it. I mean, it's, as you said, it starts as a, at a young age. So whether it's in the school system or having, you know, courses about the healthy things to eat, or, you know, part of our, our classes when we're in grade school is taking care of like a garden where we're growing vegetables, doing something that's both sustainable for the environment and also healthier for us. That was one of the things we did at Temple, actually, when I was in medical school, we had a, 
a garden where we grew vegetables and, you know, various things, healthy food that we were able to distribute to the community as well, and kind of use that as a way to focus on healthy eating and the importance of that for, you know, overall health. So you're right, it starts young, I think it definitely starts young. And I but I think that the responsibility for that can be anybody, you know, yeah, it could be on any one of us just to, you know, have that effect in spreading the importance of, of being healthy. Yeah, just it starts with a podcast episode. Can you? There you go. Here we go. People <laughs> click on that episode. How we could change that. But what I'm, what I would like to point out as well is, yes, we had school trips when we we're young to the farm, to mountains, to like looking at horses and ponies and stuff. But there is such a, a big discrepancy between what they teach you. Sure, the animals come from here. The vegetables come from here. The garden is this way. But something super trivial that could be fixed instantly is the diet at uh, the cafeteria. Like in, mm. in, uh, in France, for example, it's very, very common that kids sign up for it and parents pay a small fee and they get food. So I know in the States, it's very different. You bring your peanut butter jelly sandwich, so everybody's responsible for their own lunches. But in France, I've never seen a a balanced vegetarian meal. It's always the kids who don't want pork, kids who don't want meat, they just add more vegetables, but you don't have a protein replacement. So even every day going to school from kindergarten to the end of high school, you're being fed meat every single meal. How is this normal? Then you Mm -hmm. just realize that meat has to be necessary in your diet. Otherwise, you don't get your protein. But I feel like there could be so many more sources, um, such as beans. And also, I was teaching um, another student. She's nine years old. And she had a class based on insects because it's becoming the new meat. And that I like how they're getting woke about this because meat cannot be sustainable forever. So you have to find replacements beyond burgers or some alternate solutions that one pollute less and second, create less inflammation for your body. I feel like maybe if you, if you give like a cricket plate or burger in school, then they would normalize eating insects. Whereas yes. now it's like, why is it in, only like at the exotic session of a grocery store? You have to uh, to go to uh, an exotic country to get your, your protein from insects. I, yeah, I, I can't say that I've tried an insect burger yet, but <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> and certainly if I was eating them at the ripe age of, you know, nine or 10, then I'd probably be more into it now. But yeah, hey, why not? Why not? We have all of these other food sources that I think are just becoming, you know, more popular as people experiment with ways to be healthier and ways to, you know, like you said, avoid eating meat with every meal, diversifying your food sources. I think there's a big push for eating whole foods, which is really important and healthier in general than relying on, you know, processed foods with lots of, you know, processed carbohydrates and whatnot. I just remember my high school days where, you know, you (laughs) would either bring lunch or you could get it from the cafeteria. And the selection was like a hot dog with fries. Uh, burger I can't even remember like it's considered a vegetable yeah pizza yeah with pizza with uh onions on it um I I can't even remember where the salads were I'm sure they were there somewhere but obviously they don't have a 
they 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 didn't stay with me since since that time but yeah like hey if we could transform that then you'd be making you know changes that in the mentality of people so that they're eating healthier and that you know 30 40 years down the line they're not you know worrying about you know, starting medication for cholesterol or, you know, having to keep an eye on their blood pressure or thinking about, you know, ways of preventing pre-diabetes from becoming diabetes. I mean, if you can start with all this stuff early on, then you can prevent a lot of that stuff later, which would be, you know, wonderful for people. Sure. Absolutely. We could also get some insight from the supermarket industry because, I was watching that show, My 600 Pound Life. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but it's um, a bunch of people trying to lose weight. And in the end, to get the bypass surgery, they need to lose a large amount of weight to show that they can change their lifestyle. So it's not just a one-time fix, like a one pill or one surgery that can change your life, but it's yourself and your mental strength that Mm -hmm. has to accompany almost like therapy. But one thing, like one episode that that, that was very... um, that was very enlightening to me is like one lady said the vegetables taste gross and i don't know if you could compare like food from the states and food from europe it does taste different like you go to costco the vegetables all taste the same it's pretty much you have the aspect of the most shiny tomato it's going to stay on your shelf for three months not even decompose but it won't taste like anything so i think if we can also get fruits and veggies that are more ripe then it would taste better I was just yeah. looking at this um, um, article on Apple News. It was very interesting because they looked at the food at Trader Joe's and how they tried to bring more exotic shit to their shelf. Like it was mm. this pine berry. It was the mix between um, a pineapple and a strawberry. And it's supposed to be excellent. But because it was so not ready, it was not ripe at all. People were mm. saying that you're just ruining the experience of people who don't know what that is because now they're going to hate it. That is definitely something I've noticed since being in France more. You know, we come from our shiny, huge supermarkets in the U.S. where you just enter the produce section and it's like this glorious, bountiful land where you can get whatever you want anytime. In France, you go to the supermarket and, you know, recently I wanted to, you know, make a little tomato salad what did they tell me well it's not tomato season why are you buying those those (laughs) were you know grown in a greenhouse somewhere and don't taste like anything and there's the culture here is so much like okay well you know we're getting into spring and all of a sudden it's kiwi season so everybody has kiwis now so we just stocked up on some kiwis here All winter, we were eating oranges because that's the, you know, the season for citrus. And then pretty soon we're getting geared up for strawberries and we're going to start getting, you know, the strawberries in, in the next uh, couple months. In contrast to my, you know, local Philadelphia supermarket, where every time I walk in without fail, the first thing I see are strawberries in the shelf, whether it's January, July, October, <laughs> any, any time of year, all you, you walk in and you see strawberries and I love strawberries. So I buy them, but when it's like December and you're buying strawberries, they don't taste like anything. <laughs> but they also cost the double amount that it wouldn't. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. What's the point? So I, you're right. There's something about appreciating those time periods where, you know, nature gives us these things that are really good, especially when it's local and you know that it hasn't flown across the world to get to you. There's something really special about that, enjoying that aspect of life and then health wise uh, eating healthy. Yeah. And if anything, there are other solutions like can you can can your stuff, you can freeze it, but yeah, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. Although you could save it for a smoothie, I guess. <laughs> true, true. But um, did you ever have patients saying that, yes, I do understand your lifestyle advice is on it. You're totally right, but I'm too old to change or I'm too stuck and too anchored in my habits, my routine to change. Like, how do you deal with that mental block? Oh, just you mean basically like every patient I see <laughs> or the vast majority of them. Uh, hey, I mean, change is hard. Uh, change is hard for an- anybody. I see it in myself. I've been meaning to, you know, start going back to the pool and swimming. And here we, I said January 1st, I'm going to start doing it. Here we are, March. <laughs> haven't been yet. <laughs> better later than never, I think. <laughs> but, uh, hey, better late than never, right? And that's, I think that's also the key for how I uh, talk with patients. It's like, well, you know, change is hard, but it doesn't have to happen all at once. And it doesn't have to be some like sweeping huge change, right? And so that's why I'll usually uh, encourage people to make small changes. So, you know, the first thing you can do if you're, if you live in the suburbs and you drive everywhere, drive to the supermarket, but park in the parking spot that's the furthest one away from the, from the entrance to the supermarket. You'll have to walk more to get there. You're getting more physical activity. Integrating just, you know, a five minute walk into your day. Even these small changes can have huge, a huge impact in overall health. I recently read an article where they were, they studied people who just flex their muscles for three seconds a day with three seconds a day over the course of a month, they increase their muscle mass, their biceps by, I think it was like 10 to 15%, something like that. Who, who doesn't have three seconds a day? It is funny. Um, you literally do that. Like as you sit on the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you could do it anywhere. And then the other thing I try to remind people too, because, you know, oftentimes like we talk about cholesterol, uh, we talk about diabetes, we talk about blood pressure and ways to, you know, treat these things through diet and exercise. But one of the, I think one of the biggest things that people want to talk about is weight, right? Like weight loss. You mentioned um, that TV show, bariatric surgery. But I think oftentimes people see that as some insurmountable, you know, difficulty, like how could I possibly lose enough weight to make it matter or whatnot. And so that's another thing where I try to encourage people and you, you know, use examples from what's been studied. Like you, you can lose 5% of your total body weight, which is, you know, it's not easy, but it's an achievable goal. Uh, And just by losing 5%, you can make a world of difference in your, you know, cardiovascular risk, these other, you know, various risk factors that go into your overall health just by making a small change like that. So I think while it's tough to change, sometimes we don't have to change 
quite as much as we think to have a meaningful impact. Yeah, I'm bringing this up because I remember being younger, like in my early 20s, it was so easy to eat everything. Your metabolism was high. It was just awesome when you could just like skip a meal and that's it. You lost all your, all the fat you needed to shed. You don't need to do like extreme efforts. And I always remember my parents like telling me, well, you'll see like later after you hit 30, 35, it's going to be harder for you. And I always thought that maybe it could come from a place of laziness. But now that I'm being in the, at that age, I'm also seeing the body changes and it could be hormonal because I think your peers also readjust as you get older that fat is harder to lose, but also your mental becomes like, I'm more comfortable with myself. I'm more confident than when I was at 20. So I don't need to be a people pleaser. I don't need to be as skinny for the people, especially with the pandemic. Like we all live in sweatpants. So it's like, you're more okay with yourself being the way you are. Mm -hmm. So that resilience also comes from a place of comfort. Absolutely. And as we get older, our bodies are always changing. Like you said, hormone levels, our activity levels, our diet, exercise, relationships, you know, not going out dancing or going out to the bar quite as much as I used to. Uh, Tons of things, you know, changing as time goes on. And some of those changes are good. Some of those are maybe not as you know wished for that's life right things are things are always changing so important to accept that yeah we also spend way more time on the computer and that's i think um many chiropractors and osteopaths can attest that they always have to massage shoulders like we live a more sedentary lifestyle that makes us obviously most of us have heard oh i've gained weight during the pandemic it's making us more productive in the sense that we can multitask more it's not like you can you know in the olden days without computers you have to do everything you have to bring packages you have to mail stuff it's a it's more physical but now that you can just buy something you're just a click away you don't even have to drive to the mall you can literally get like everything delivered to you including food including your medicine So it's the same with services. You don't have to go to school anymore. You can get your online courses. Everything is made so you move less. And talking about this, because it's kind of ironic how you provide care through online, but also people stay online, therefore they get less in shape. (laughs) I try to have more of a positive impact in what we're talking about through telemedicine than the act of sitting at the... (laughs) at the computer for another, you know, half an hour. It's the same kind of thing. Like you just have to like force yourself to not submit completely to the new, the new lifestyle, right? Like, yeah, we're working from home. The lines between home life and work life are blurred now. Responding to emails at, you know, 11 p.m. because we're at home, we're at, we're in the office, right? But is it home or the office? Throughout all of that, Like you said, it's still important to move, you know, it's still important to get up, move around, go outside. It's easy in this, in this new lifestyle to, to forget about that, you know, when things are so convenient and just at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. But to come back onto your original goal of being closest to the patient, now that you've chosen that online style of treating people, do you get the same sense of fulfillment that it still provides you with? I can see the, the result because technically you could be on two different continents. You mm-hmm. see it, but not see it. Mm-hmm. It's different. Yeah, it is different. There is something about being 
present with somebody uh, that you can't replicate when you're, you know, talking to them through Zoom and you have a screen between you and, or, you know, possibly thousands of miles as well. So there's definitely something different about it, but there's also something that's remarkably the same or in some ways even better. I feel that when we're on telemedicine, you know, gone are all those distractions of everything else around us. Like we don't have all the other patients and providers in the office running around. We're not taking that extra time to bring the patients in and check their information and bring them back. And if they're, you know, if I'm running late and they're waiting for me while well, they're at home, so it's not too bad to have to wait at home. And in some ways through telemedicine, it's actually easier to keep in touch because you have the technology there to do that. So when I see patients through a video chat, my hope is that that conversation does not end at the end of that video chat, but that they're able to hop onto a, our texting service or whatnot afterwards. And we can follow up if their lab results come in, I'll send them a text and we'll, you know, text about their results. Or if they, you know, have a question, they can just shoot me a quick message and say, Hey, what do you think about this uh, side effect or, or whatnot of a medication? And it's also really cool for me because if I'm, I want to make sure that my treatment is helping. So if I prescribe them, say antibiotics for a UTI, a urinary tract infection, or a steroid cream for a rash, I can text them a couple of days from now and say, Hey, how's that? How's that doing? How, how are you feeling? Is, is it working? They could shoot me a picture of, you know, the rash to show that it's getting better. And I think by finally integrating some more technology into medicine. In some ways, it, I feel almost closer to the patients because it's, it wasn't just that one visit at the office now. It's this kind of like longitudinal relationship, which is one of the things that brought me to family medicine in the first place. It's definitely changing the interaction you have with your doctor, because you know how in the olden days, you would have high respect for the doctor. There's like a big gap. And then you would listen to everything he's saying, like without questioning. And now it's like, we Google symptoms, you text your doctor. It's like, how weird is this? Because usually you text your friends, but now I'm texting my doctor. Yeah. But we have to normalize it, right? If we normalize it, then it's just an expected. If you text your friends, why wouldn't you text your doctor, right? It's the same as a university. Now we don't call our prof like doctor something. We call them by their first name. That I remember was a big change to me. I'm like, uh, mm -hmm. are you my friend now? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, don't, I don't know if that change has come to medical schools yet. <laughs> but hey, I mean, yeah, I, I think that bringing these, you know, these new things into medicine is kind of what we need, right? Because who wants to wait three months for their next appointment to ask their doctor, you know, a simple little question about their, you know, medication and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. It's also giving you a bigger accessibility to more people from different places. So you don't have to be limited to your local right. area. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've noticed because I've been an online teacher for many years now, and I would never go back to the classroom setting because I love teaching here. Like I'm in my office 
I know mm -hmm. it could be ugly. You don't have to wear a bra. No one's going to know about it. You don't have to wear makeup because you can put a filter or whatever. It's right. so easy and so convenient. But the thing is, as much as you want to work, like it's also easier to kind of cheat. Like I see mm -hmm. my student, like how would I know if they're not looking up answers on Google at the same time? Mm -hmm. So it's those kind of things where, you know, you can do multiple things at once. Like I had, for example, a student playing video games at the same time as I was teaching. It's like, sure, I saw it, but like I could play dumb and be like, no. <laughs> There's definitely, yeah, you're right. There's definitely like this informality of being at home and just having a video screen. And I've noticed it too in, you know, seeing my patients as well, where people come to the doctor's office, they're all, you know, fit and trim and, you know, they're ready to see the doctor. And when they're at home, you know, maybe they're, you know, just in their like home attire, you know, they're not because, you know, there's a thing where oftentimes patients, when they see their doctor, they try to look their best because they feel like they need to show their doctor that they're being healthy and that they're doing well and whatnot. But like, that's almost like counterproductive, right? It's, it's actually cool. So in, in a sense, the informality by doing this through video is weird because it's new and it's not what you expect. But at the same time, isn't that what a patient should be reflecting to their doctor so that the provider can pick up on maybe little things that are problematic or even without even diving into, you know, mental health and how that is plays out and is really important for, for overall health. But also because it makes it so simple, it, it reduces the cost of everything. You don't have to pay for offices. You don't have to pay for cleaning, electricity, or receptionists because they fill mm -hmm. up the format themselves. Shouldn't this be the solution to lower the cost of going seeing a doctor? Because you're just I, paying for services. You're not paying for the experience itself. Yeah, I think it, I think it can play into it. And if the, the rise of Teladoc and Amwell and all these telehealth services in the US, I think it's showing that people like this and they're starting to make a case that this could reduce healthcare costs. I mean, insurance companies wouldn't be getting into it if it wasn't a cost-lowering thing. But I think there's also a limitation, right? Because there, you know, if you come to me oh, through a telehealth video chat with pain in your ear, it's going to be very difficult for me to take a look. I mean, you can do what you can to hold up the camera to your ear and <laughs> turn the light on. Maybe. Like a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> That's even further into the future. <laughs> we still have limitation and we're working on it, right? We're working on that little scope that you can put into your ear that's, you know, connected to your phone and then has an image that's beamed to my computer, you know, however many miles away, or that there are stethoscopes, the thing that we use to listen to the heart, which can digitize that sound and then send it to somebody on the other side of the computer. So these are all like really cool things. And I think they're, they're ways that we're going to enhance the telehealth experience. But I don't think we're ever going to totally replicate what it is to go to your doctor and see them in person and have that face-to-face -face visit. Because we're in our 30s and it's normal for us to assume that everybody knows how to use a cell phone or 
connect to a computer, there's still a large amount of the population who gets sick, who don't know how to be tech savvy. Mm -hmm. When I was working in research, it was mostly cancer. And unfortunately, like the cancer population is also older. So those people had trouble even with emails. So mm -hmm. we are excluding right now a part of the population, but as we're evolving, those people are going to end up dying and then it won't be an issue. But as of right now, there's still a lot of people who need care, but still can't connect to a computer. Yeah, that's definitely yeah, a limit. Do you think your patient pool has been more on the younger side? So I see quite a few patients on the younger side in their 20s and 30s. But for as many as I see at that age, I'll see, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. A little less uh, when you get uh, over that age. I, I think we have both sides. I think I'm oftentimes pleasantly surprised by how capable um, some of my older patients are to connect to video and to get things working. Very oftentimes, they're also helped by, you know, younger family members or friends that might be around and are able to help kind of mediate the, the process. But at the same time, you know, people as they get older, if they have additional medical conditions and medical concerns, those are oftentimes the patients that probably should be seen in person anyway, because you <laughs> definitely don't want to miss something. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Jason, for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been like a really, really cool conversation. Yeah. Do you, have, um, do you have a last piece of advice for listeners? Hey, as a primary care doctor, family medicine, I would just say, don't forget to get your annual physical this year. It's really important and you'll be healthier and happier because of it. It's, I know it sounds weird, but do you give advice like don't do drugs, don't drink too much, don't smoke? Or do you think it's going to the judgmental side? No, I, I, I always ask about all of those things and tons more because all of those affect your overall health, right? But I think we're able to talk about things like, you know, drugs and sex and alcohol and whatnot in a non-judgmental way because... The important thing is just we want people to be healthy, right? And so we know what's healthy and what's not. And we know that there's oftentimes gray areas as well. So like cannabis is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I always, yeah, I always <laughs> encourage all my patients to talk about these things and not everybody's comfortable doing it, which is totally understandable. But I, I try to be very open-minded with people and try to create a welcoming, open environment so that people feel comfortable talking about that. Because at the end of the day, we're not here to judge. We're just here to make sure people are healthy and, you know, you know, living their lives. So that's yeah, nice. absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for the conversation. It's been really, really cool. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks so much, Ovani. Yeah, I will see you soon uh, in Paris, actually. That's good. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Education Monsters. I hope you liked it. If you'd like to take a French lesson with me, don't hesitate to go on the Education Monsters website to book a class. I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please, please, please consider making a donation to my Patreon account. 
This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.